Buongiorno everybody and welcome. This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specs and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Zero. Our esteemed guest today is Pamela Dingo, Director of Identity Standards at Microsoft and a founding member of Women in ID. Welcome, Pamela. Hello, it's so great to be here. Thanks for joining me today. Can we start with a how you ended up working in identity. I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating <laughs> Well, probably not, but I'm telling it anyway, so you'll have to listen to it. So I'm originally from Canada, and I got into the identity world because I was flying to California to do middleware work. So I was a system administrator back in the day, and I was being flown as the cheap Canadian labor into Silicon Valley in order to install middleware, the middleware that I was installing ended up being directory servers, in addition to mail servers and web servers. And I started to get really interested in not just the the systems, but in what we were actually storing. And really where I got hooked was at a web conference. Well, actually an in-person conference. I ended up at a conference called the Burton Group Catalyst Conference, which by the way, is where I met you, Vittorio. And all right. I got there and there were a thousand people all talking about the same things that I thought were cool. And so I ended up standing up and asking questions and getting very excited and very involved. And what happened was the organizer of the conference, his name is Jamie Lewis, some of you might recognize that name, came to me at the end of the conference and said, you, you did a really great job. You really distinguished yourself. You should present an abstract. You should put an abstract in for next year's conference. And so... I got really excited. I was very encouraged by this. And so I created an abstract and it was rejected. And then the next year I created an abstract and it was rejected. And, you know, so for any of you out there who are having trouble breaking into the conference speaking circuit, please know that that everyone goes through that problem. But during that entire time, I was meeting people and talking and gaining relationships that were international and, you know, being part of these you know, conversations about identity on the internet. And uh, it changed my whole approach to life and to my career. And so I ended up getting involved with a thing called InfoCard and doing a lot of work, uh, writing open source information card plugins for WordPress and Joomla, things like that. And uh, that's how I got into identity. It sort of took off after that. Very nice. And uh, what was your professional trajectory that led you to your current so, After I started working on InfoCard, I uh, was in, invited to interview at a company called Ping Identity. For those of you who don't know, Ping Identity makes federation products, among other things. And I got to go work in the office of the CTO in, at Ping Identity. Nice. I worked there for eight years, had a wonderful time, and uh, then got the opportunity to come to Microsoft. So uh, that was my first time working for a, a vendor creating software, and it was a great experience. Very nice. Fantastic. Well, and in Microsoft, your focus is precisely the topic of today's episode, which is uh, identity standards. That is correct. Correct. Very nice. Perfect. So finally, we will unveil the mystery of how standards work. So can you tell us a bit about what standards are? Yes, I absolutely can. And I would start with an analogy. 
And that is, imagine a world where you had to directly wire every single lamp, every single appliance in your home into your power grid. Imagine that world where nothing is done for you, where you have to go figure it out. You have to calculate the voltage capacities, you know, the current, everything. Well, that world is hard, is difficult. What standards do is they allow you to make assumptions about the predictability of the system that you're working in. So when I pick up a lamp and I hold the plug that's going to you know, slide into the wall, I don't have to understand what that means. I don't have to understand how many volts the appliance is rated for. You know, I don't have to understand if it's direct current or alternating current because somebody else has def devised a set of interfaces that abstract that away, right? So from a developer point of view, we're really talking about layers of abstraction that you can put over top um, of things that occur either on the wire, right? Usually using HTTPS, but also, you know, there are, there are specifications for everything you do in daily life. For example, why do your dishes fit in the dishwasher, right? Well, that's probably more of a convention, right? So there's, you know, in a lot of ways, Standards are conventions where everyone does things in a common way and they find value in it that then turn into strict codifications so that we can all conform, right? So there's, there's a relationship between interoperability, predictability, reliability, and common preferences and usage. That's a fantastic analogy. I absolutely love it. But the advantage is clear. The thing that is less clear is like, uh, given that the word always moves toward uh, growing entropy, and instead what you described is uh, a situation of beautiful order and symmetry. Clearly, it's not something that just happens spontaneously, but there must have been some kind of uh, effort here. So how did we go from like a Cambrian explosion of people uh, jewelry rigging uh, lamps together to today's beautifully regulated word? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know how it evolved. I mean, I, I didn't don't know what the genesis of some of these standards organizations are, but I can tell you. I think that Tony Nadalin in the yeah, origin right. decided one day that we had to be regulated, and uh, he was still wearing his suit, and uh, things happened. I think we can uh, thank yes. him for uh, a lot of yes. stuff. Yes, I, I would say that behind every warning sign is an initial incident. So I'm guessing that a bunch of things really went wrong <laughs> that made people decide that they needed to get together and create more specific rules on how systems should evolve. Uh, in the identity world, the standards that really are the basis in the identity world are, you know, Kerberos, right? And the precursor to LDAP, which I think was X.50, I want to say five, X.500, I think. Yeah, it's far enough uh, in the past that we can uh, probably happily... Far enough it. in the past, but you know who you should put on this podcast is Dale Holtz. Mark Wall. Yes, Mark as well. If you had Mark and Dale each separately, Dale Olds was one of the primary inventors of NDS in the Nobel world. And so he has a very different view on how LDAP and how lightweight directory access protocol evolved. Uh, but that's what we're talking about. For those of you who aren't familiar with uh, LDAP, 
it was one of the very first standards that allowed you to apply a layer of abstraction to identity in that what you could do is centralize your credentials in a single place. So you could, uh, you know, instead of every single application everywhere storing passwords, you could store them in one place and then you could ask for them from anywhere. Now, at the time, anywhere was within a network perimeter. Of course. Yeah, it was one of the days. And uh, I think that one of the first uh, standards that uh, actually was by design created for uh, spanning uh, multiple uh, band, like multiple perimeters was uh, SAML. SAML started with the Liberty Alliance, do. remember? Do we want to start from there or uh, do we want to start with something uh, more modern? I think SAML is a really good place to start, in fact. And to give you an idea of how old SAML is and possibly how old I am, when I came to my very first identity conference, you know, the one I talked about earlier, that was the conference where uh, Liberty Alliance was really kicking off and where, you know, in that case, this desire for cross-domain secure, what I call it secure introductions across domains was very strong. And, and part of that was because there was uh, concern at the time over any one company really owning that space, right? So part of the reason why SAML came to be was the idea that any identity provider could own and operate their own engine to make assertions about people, right? And by assertions, you know, when I talk about SAML, I talk about it as a secure introduction. So, you know, there's a lot of, of terms that fly around here. At the time, there was no real concept of REST. There was no concept of what we would call a back-channel interaction. I mean, there were back-channel interactions, but from a web perspective, the most common SAML interaction that we have now is what's called SAML post profile, right? And that is really about only using HTTP posts to send in a request and get a response back, right? Right, and it's just to translate these in very concrete terms. We could say that SAML was designed for helping facilitate web single sign-on. So you have a browser, you open it, you go to a certain website, you authenticate as part of that, and then you go to another website and <gasps> magic, you are authenticated in there without having to enter credentials. And that was uh, all there was. It was like the main problem being solved. And so everything was in what uh, we call the so-called uh, front it, it channel. It was front channel. So the irony of that is that the post SAML post profile is really the only thing that has survived. But if you were in that standards body, if you were in the Liberty Alliance at that time debating, and I was not there, uh, but what I do know is that they covered all sorts of use cases. They covered far more than web single sign-on. There's another one called, I believe, ECP proxy, which was in fact meant to deal with some of the use cases similar to OpenID Connect and OAuth, meaning you had a so client proxy, right? It was, it was the idea that you had active software that, what, that might want to make requests without browsers. So that data was there, that desire and those use cases were there. Um, but at the time that the underlying technology was different and the assumptions that you could make were different. And so, you know, that working group actually came up with a whole bunch of really brilliant work that in some sense was ahead of its time and enough ahead of its time that by the time we got to the point again where active software was a common phenomenon, 
We also had a number of other changed properties like cloud platforms, right? REST APIs, and most importantly, mobile platforms. That was fun. But before we get uh, into the next steps of evolution, let's uh, uh, pause for a moment uh, on the Liberty Alliance in itself, because uh, that was uh, a, a good example of organization standard and a very different institution than today's uh, uh, standards. So can you tell me a bit more about who was in the Liberty Alliance? Uh, how did it operate? Yeah, the Liberty Alliance. And just know that you know I wasn't there for that. I, so this is my outside opinion rather than uh, any kind of inside opinion. Uh, but the thing about Liberty Alliance was that you know the big players were there. And this is really the thing about standards bodies even today, is that you have to have the right community present. You can write any standard you want, but if you don't have the right people at the table, then they don't get adopted and they don't get used. So there's, you know, when making standards, there are these critical ingredients that have to exist, including having the right people at the table and having them work at the right level to create the right amount of data, right? And the right types of documents. But in the Liberty Alliance case, uh, you know, the big players then, uh, RSA was there, Sun was there. There were, you know, a lot of these big players were in the room uh, and what they created was very, at the end of the day, quite formal. Formal enough that uh, the outcome of this standards document creation also resulted in a conformance test, right? And that back in the day, for example, when I started at Ping, was just sort of at the point where they where those conformance tests be, began being less important. But you know, in those days, when you if you wanted to write a product and you wanted to be SAML compliant, you had to go get a quite expensive certification to say that you could comply with this profile or that profile, the education profile, so on and so forth. So that, you know, there were the folks that were writing the documents, but then there was this very strict sense of whether you get to say you can perform those SAML validations or issue assertions also. And expenses is a really a keyword here because uh, back in the day, in order to even participate in the discussion, like uh, you had to be accredited with one of the companies that was part of the organization. There was a fee. The meetings were like in uh, expensive hotels here and there. So it was a very enterprising affair. And today we no longer operate in those terms. Yes. Right? Uh, so I will say that the, the travel, so expensive locations is a bit of a hallmark of, of at least the identity standards bodies. And part of that is an effort in, uh, at inclusion. So, you know, for many of the standards bodies that my group works in, for example, this would include uh, the IETF, ISO, OpenID Foundation, less so. These standards bodies often choose three physical locations in order to have their meetings. And the reason that they do that is that gives opportunities to each of the time zones, you know, in the world to make sure that there's not a bias towards all, you know, American participation or European participation or, you know, Asia Pacific participation. So this has been a, a fairly common pattern right up until COVID-19 hit, was to get people in the room to actually talk in person. Right. And in this particular case, the interesting part is uh, there are these um, important milestones for the year in which there are like a uh, high bandwidth in-person conversations, which of course now all occur virtually. But the point is that uh, if someone wants to participate to the discussion, 
now you no longer need to belong to some uh, big company, right? Like, uh, like you mentioned the ITF. Can we expand a bit, for example, on uh, what ITF is, what it does, uh, how people participate? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Every, one, every standards organization has its own flavor, has its own culture and rules. And they do. They have different amounts of enterprise requirement to them. So IETF, everyone joins as an individual. There is lots of opportunity, as I understand it, that for individuals to sort of participate and to be part of the mailing lists and to be uh, part of the working groups in an IETF situation. IETF has this concept of area directors. So that, you know, it's in some sense a hierarchical world where, you know, they do have people who are trying to curate different areas of technology. There are other standards bodies that are uh, that have different cultures. For example, W3C is another standards body. Uh, W3C is generally where the browser community is. So if you're trying to work on browser-related topics, you generally want to work in the W3C. And examples of what's happening in W3C in the identity world would include the credential, the Credman API and the WebAuthn API. Those two are both related to each other. And you know a lot of the any the, the, a lot of the browser identity related things. Uh, privacy pass is another one uh, that's going on right now, for example. So those tend to have different people in them, and those different people are trying to accomplish different things. In IETF, the folks who are there are generally more on the wire people, right? So you, you get more you get lots of networking folks you get lots of people doing the, you know, the direct transfer stuff. So OAuth is an example of a working group that runs in IETF. And ultimately, although, of course, there are cultural differences and uh, differences in focus uh, on the particular topic, but in general, the playbook is similar, as in uh, there are documents which might be called RFCs, which might be called something else, depending on the flavor, and those documents uh, enshrine descriptions of a particular scenario, of a particular aspect that uh, the standard wants to regulate, describe, and uh, provide norms for. And then uh, all these discussions are about uh, minutia on the particular details of yes, this standard, this is right? Correct. So the idea of all of these working groups is to create something that is static. It is a snapshot in time. It describes a set of rules that everybody can adhere to. And the assumption is that if you adhere to the rules, then you and anyone else who also adheres to the rules will be able to communicate and achieve whatever the standard is designed to do. So, uh, you know, there are many examples of how this might work. In identity, uh, single sign-on is a big one, right? Federation, which, you know, as I said, I call it a secure introduction, meaning that if you follow the rules for either OpenID Connect or for SAML, then what should happen is you will play a role. And in that role, you have a job to do in order to be secure. And so an example of this would be the relying party role. And the whole idea of a relying party role is that you are going to be, someone is going to introduce a user to you and you have a job as a relying party in order to be sure that that introduction is secure, that it's coming from the right party that it hasn't been counterfeited or intercepted. And so, you know, in theory, if that's the role you want to play, you want to play the role of relying party, 
then you're going to go find the specification that explains how to do that. Uh, in this case, it would probably be OpenID Connect Core. And you would read that and then you would do, you know, you would follow those codified instructions. And you should be able to know on what date that document was written. You should be able to know what version that document is. And you should be able to negotiate with the other party to be sure that they're going to use the same version and date, you know, this, this, the equivalent set of instructions so that you can have an assurance of success. And given that you mentioned OpenID Connector, OpenID Connector does not come from the ITF nor the W3C, right? That is from correct. Where so OpenID Connect comes from the OpenID Foundation. And the OpenID Foundation uh, is a foundation that is open for anyone to join. So I, I believe it costs around $25 for an individual to join. And uh, they have working groups for OpenID Connect. Uh, for, for those of you who do not know the relationship between OpenID Connect and OAuth, OpenID Connect is a profile that adds identity information to an OAuth interaction. So in this case, this is a case of a working group that is relying on the output of another standards body. You have to understand OAuth from the IUTF and you have to understand OpenID Connect from the OpenID Foundation in order to be able to, to do web single sign-on. So all these standard bodies, uh, all these uh, participants, you mentioned that uh, uh, it's important to have the right people that participate. There is a lot of overlap between those teams, right? Like I know that uh, like yourself, you are in a leadership position, so of course you needed to have it your paw in many jars, but like a lot of individual contributors like uh, contribute to both of OpenID Connect and similar, yes. right? Some people are professional standards people and some folks really only care about, about a specific area. So you'll find that there's a mix of people in these specification groups. Some of them are deep subject matter experts only in you know, tokens or only in telephony or only in networking. And some folks actually move across the top. There are some folks, for example, who are professional standards body chairs. So, you know, they don't so much specialize in the tech itself, but what they do specialize in is getting a good output from the subject matter experts that are in the group. So, you know, what they're good at is process because one of the critical parts of a standards body is A, ensuring that everyone's heard, but B, driving consensus. And so, you know, the, the techniques for driving consensus are a podcast all in their own. But they, you know, at some point, you can't let people talk about possibilities forever. At some point, you actually have to decide what bits go on paper and what details matter, and, you know, and various groups will push back in various ways, depending on what's important to them. So that whole idea of know, of allowing everyone to get the pieces that are important into the specification while still ending up with a product that achieves its actual goal, that's the magic. It's really hard. Like uh, getting consensus out is so difficult because like uh, everyone has uh, their scenario very clear. And so that's what they want enshrined in the document. But everyone has different uh, experiences. Like in these uh, standards, uh, I remember like when uh, Depop came up and it's a fantastic idea. But then uh, some of the ultra-large vendors, like the ones with a really, really a lot of uh, scale challenges just for uh, their sheer size, came back and said, hey, 
you are using asymmetric crypto and uh, at the scale at which we operate, it's just not workable. So like uh, these kind of interactions that uh, people that don't have to operate at that scale don't even think about are like uh, illuminating moments saying, oh, wow, yeah, we do need to have this forum in which uh, different people come together and bring what's yes, different perspectives. absolutely. And, you know, when you create a spec and it doesn't have that, then what happens is you have, you create confusion later. You create difficulty later. So being able to know upfront what's important, what isn't, is a huge deal. Uh, there are times though where you don't, where nobody knows. Nobody realizes the impact of a decision that gets made. And so those are always interesting times. I, I would give an example, I think, of uh, Pixie would be an example of that, where, you know, had the working group in OWAH, in the IETF, had they, you know, had ma a magic crystal ball, they would have known that theft of the authorization code in an OF flow would be a problem. And they would have, uh, you know, they would have solved the problem right up front. They didn't. So what happened was, you know, you can actually go look this up. PKCE is the OAuth uh, specification. And they had to write a separate profile that goes on later to the specification uh, that solves this very important security issue of, of theft of the authorization code. And it would be better if it was all one, because the one thing the one thing I will say is that because consensus is difficult and because we are trying to find something that everyone does, anything that's optional becomes problematic. So this, the art of standards is making sure that people have not many choices, but few, right? Just enough choice for them to suit their business needs, but not so much choice that uh, everyone has to implement a whole bunch of different conditions as part of them having to support the standard. It really is very hard. Because like finding the, uh, the boundary between uh, prescriptive and uh, freedom, like uh, OAuth is extraordinarily successful, but it's also not particularly well interoperating. It teaches you to be a client, but leaves so many details out that... Uh, when you know that uh, A and B both support off, you don't necessarily know whether they can talk to each other. Whereas uh, you can make that statement when uh, A and B are doing SAML or OpenID Connect. true, although I would say that the difference between SAML and OpenID Connect is that they were designed to cross domains. For me, you know, from my perspective, an OAuth authorization server was primarily formed to be able to communicate with things within, you know, that, that you control, right? So the whole reason why an access token is opaque to a client is because that client is outside of your world, right? Like we've given easy instructions for how clients can use access tokens specifically because we don't want them to all have to understand every in and out of what's inside an access token. At least that's how it started. Right. You are talking to the wrong guy in there because uh, the spec that I'm uh, driving is exactly one that uh, is uh, formalizing something that the market has done on its own anyway, which is uh, to actually use uh, a recognizable format. Uh, but like, uh, yes, I, I get the point as in like uh, off was focused on uh, just the client, the stuff that gets the token and uses the token rather than consume the token. And then there was this underlying assumption that uh, 
the resource server and the authorization server, so the, the one that consumes the token and the one that emits the token, were largely collocated, like classic Facebook gives you the token, Facebook also exposes the, the graph. And so when you send the token, the token could be just a link of a row in a table, and the table is written by both the consumer and the producer. Whereas in the real world, especially businesses like Microsoft and of zeros, you do have an authorization server in one place and the consumer of a token in a completely different place. And so you can't rely on them reading the same table. So you've got to find some tricks. And uh, sure, there is introspection, but that's very expensive. And so that's why almost everyone on the planet uses JWT yes. as a format. And so that's, and again, this is a testament to adding the correct uh, extensibility points in the standard. Like OAuth is great because it had the right extensibility for adding a posteriori a lot of the things that uh, you mentioned. Yes. I think too, if you compare the SAML world and you know how it evolved at the beginning to the OpenID Connect world and how it evolved, you know, going back to that topic of standards bodies and how standards bodies work, you know, one thing we do very well in identity is we react to what has come before. So I was in fact there for the OpenID Connect discussions compared to the SAML discussions. And one of the things that the editors were very determined to do when OAuth was created was to ensure that they did not create a monster specification because the SAML specification was something like 800 pages, right? And so if, imagine you're a developer who's trying to go and learn how that works. Well, 800 pages is a little daunting, right? And so, you know, when you look at the OAuth specification in IETF, it is short, but there are many, right? So they've, they've gone the route of creating a short spec that did just enough and allowing for profiles to extend it. And you know, there, there are advantages and disadvantages, but I think the, the advantages outweigh the disadvantages in this case. You don't have to adopt the pieces Absolutely. you don't want to, right? And you can still be conformant to a given tiny baby spec. And of course, like for us, we say short spec because you know, we are anchored to the 800 pages of SAML, but for the normal person, the normal developer who cares about productivity and not as much about identity, the 60, 70 pages that are typical of our new world, it's still like, like I guess that most people can actually just use SDKs with uh, the comfort of knowing that given that they are all using standards, the scenario that you nicely described earlier about like being able to plug the lamp in the wall, you don't even need to know the voltage. You just know that the manufacturer of a lamp followed that standard. And so when you buy it, you know you can plug yes. it in your wall. I think many developers won't read those specifications. And in that case, using an SDK you know, or a library is valuable because there are edge cases that need to be taken care of. But the number one requirement, as far as I'm concerned for developers, is for them to remember that in these kind of access management use cases, the happy path is not that the user gets in. It's not that the assertion arrives and the user has access to their resource. The happy path 
is when it fails. The happy path is kicking out the wrong people. And we have seen examples of implementations that have gone all the way to production where not only can the right people get in, but everyone else can get in too, right? So simple things like validating your signature are absolutely critical. And if you set these things up without testing, that's when I get scared. Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic point. And uh, again, value of a standard is that like uh, a lot of people list the things that uh, should be done in order to prevent exactly what is just did, uh, what is just said. And uh, if you follow the standard, if that's the case, you use follow the standard, you'll be sitting on the cumulative wisdom of uh, all these people in the community. Fantastic. Before we part ways, I wanted to ask you about uh, women in ID. I know you are uh, involved in that, and uh, I'd like to hear more about what it is about uh, and uh, if there is any call to action that you can think of. Yes, absolutely. Women in Identity is a grassroots organization, but we have quite a large following now. We have something like 4,000 fans and uh, 1,300 members. And we have an amazing group of ambassadors all over the world that organize local communities and local events. There, you know, for example, we have, I think, something like 400 people in Canada alone. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun. Uh, the reason why it grew and why we created it was because uh, for a lot of women in our field, they feel alone. So maybe you're, maybe you're the only woman who's doing identity in your given company. There are a lot of us out there. And so uh, what Women in Identity is, you know, we are dedicated to diversity, not only for women, but diversity in general. Uh, but we also have this belief that we can help each other, that we can be seen, we can raise our own visibility, and we can support each other, and we can you know, do good in the identity world as well. And, you know, if you're interested in that and, you know, it's not just for women. So if you're an ally, you're welcome to join and be part of this. We are, you know, as inclusive as we possibly can be. And we're always open minded as far as how we can be better. Uh, but where you want to go to is womeninidentity.org. If you go there, you can find a, a link that will let you join and become a member and, uh, you know, come be part of our community. Wonderful. That's a great initiative. And, uh, I know a lot of people are absolutely enthusiastic about uh, how useful Visa has been for them to feel part of a community and uh, exchange opinions with uh, other uh, experts. It's a great initiative. And we'll make sure to add the link in the podcast description. Fantastic. Well, Pam, thank you so much for your time. It was really great to have you on the episode. And uh, I believe that Visa is going to be so useful for so many people that have been using the standards but didn't really uh, fully grasp what that really meant. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat. It's always a good time. Wonderful. Thank you again. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Walowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero.